0: We've been doing this film for the last sort of two weeks and we've noticed you every day at Twickenham Studios and also here. you stand outside all day long. He you tell us why?
1: Just about seeing, that's why.
2: This week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Cham. And I'm John Stone. Joining us this week is Martin Marv Quibel, uh, our friend from across the ocean. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We continue our ongoing look at Get Back and our guest build holiday season.
3: We're plowing on. But it gets real interesting now.
2: <laughs> this week, we start with Day 7, the 10th of January, a, a most momentous day. Indeed, yes.
3: Swell the music. Dun, dun, dun.
4: <laughs> yes, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> or we won't talk at all.
2: But that was three days ago.
4: That's true. But in the Let It Be film, it was made out that it was a bigger thing. I was just saying in passing, that's all.
2: So what Peter Jackson chose not to tell us, as the Beatles sort of strolled in that morning... Michael Lindsay Hogg was fascinated with Zsa Zsa Gabor and her appearance on television the previous evening.
4: Uh, as were most people in the
3: '60s.
2: That would have been before Green Acres, right?
3: She wasn't in Green Acres.
2: Ah, it was her sister. was in Green Acres. Yes, uh, the Gabor sisters—they're all the yeah. same.
3: <laughs> they're very similar, no doubt, but uh,
2: okay. not quite the Marx Brothers.
3: <laughs> the
4: s- '60s and '70s version of the Kardashians. Yes, exactly <laughs> They're
3: Bingo. <laughs> With perhaps a little bit more talent? I don't know. This episode opened up with um, an arrival by Dick James. An interesting little way to start this.
5: Nobody loves a fairy when she's 40. (laughs) You don't.
2: Northern Songs had bought uh, this song publishing catalog. It's the Lawrence Wright Music Catalog, if anyone wants to go look it up and find out more. Hint, hint, Nick. Is this the catalogue that's just gone on sale? It's the one we just bought. Oh, you bought it? Oh, yeah, great. Northern
4: ourselves. Now, because Brian's passed away, the Beatles, essentially, until... Duh, 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 Mr. Klein takes over. <laughs> right. Then it's just communication between Dick James and the Beatles themselves. And for some strange reason, since 1967, late on when, when Brian died, or, 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 or whenever it was this is the first time that dick james has actually thought perhaps i ought to actually go and talk to them
3: he had had some contact before because strangely enough he's featured in the apple promo film with paul kind of dressing him down
0: dick we now think that it's time we sorted it out a bit more i will try i promise you i will try to sort it out as quickly as possible come back and sit down with me and put it on the line
4: If I I am advised, and I were to sit with my own thoughts, and I'm not prepared to do anything, I'll still come back and sit down and honestly tell you something. You see, because we get advice not to...
0: you.
5: it's up to us whether we do it or
0: not. So, Dick, that's it. You go away, and you come back with something which,
2: you know, won't start this argument again. After Brian passed, they went to Dick James and tried to renegotiate their contract then, and he would have none of it. And so, you know, that sort of started the tensions between them. Although this is not a horribly tension-filled meeting between the Beatles and Dick James.
3: You don't think it was tension-filled?
2: They're not happy with him, and Paul sort of says some things, but it's not like John Lennon is shouting at him.
3: Lennon has nothing to do with him. He walks in and walks past and even when they're looking through the catalog and Ringo says to George.
5: Would you like to see what you'd have half of a percent of? Oh, really?
3: <laughs> There's definitely a back and forth between Dick James and Paul not loud or angry.
0: Which includes Paul
1: and John
3: and I think to just about suppose,
0: what are you talking about just about nothing no, no comment very substantially said yes right okay <laughs> we'll have a lunch on this.
2: It. Yeah, it's clear that they don't like Dick James, but I, I still don't think it's horribly tension-filled. Well, I think, It's not a pleasant meeting. I, but. I
3: think that, you know, it's clear that Dick James has become a wealthy man based on Northern songs and the fact that, as you said, at least Paul had gone to him saying, we need to renegotiate that. And he said, no, Paul has always, even with Michael Jackson said, you know, I've done pretty good for the company. You'd think that you could change that a little bit, include us on some of the profit. And everybody kept saying no, because you're a cash cow.
2: We need not remind everybody. Two months later, Dick James would sell out.
3: Right. Yep. March of '69s. I always think of state of mind. What is the state of mind? Is Dick James already considering bailing? Because, you know, clearly John and Paul are not happy with him. And so he may be already planning to get rid of this as fast as I can.
2: And it's like I've never seen a picture, never seen any film of Dick James's partner, you know, Silver. It's like, who is this guy? Because they're the two people in Northern Songs on on the business side,
4: right? It's it's very telling, really, because I think George was more than slightly irritated by some of the uh, the, the business wranglings and the percentages and things like that. That you know, so he only had like this little mini small percentage, you know, which technically Ringo pulled up by saying, oh, do you want to see what you've got 2% of or whatever it is? Right. And I think all these business things irritated George to the nth degree.
2: Well, he feels that everything before Harrisongs was founded was basically stolen from him. Right. That was his opinion. Right.
3: Uh, you know, the, the, his i think in epstein's book he talks about george being the one who's interested in the where did the money come from where's it going i mean that was part of his interest and so he definitely was irritated because he probably knew the truth more than everybody else i mean he's not happy with the arrangements as they went down no
4: but then he's also irritated at how um he feels that EMI are giving them short shrift because he says the amount of money that we've made for them, why can't they provide us with the recording equipment that we've asked for?
3: Yeah. Wasn't it on 321 where McCartney was like on the mixing board, there was a little switch that went from classical to pop. And <laughs> it was basically EQ settings and that sort of thing. But they were kind of irritated. It's like, why do the classical people get a special thing? And, you know, we don't.
2: Why do they get all the goody
3: cues? <laughs> right. <laughs> the goody cues.
0: <laughs> Carolina Moon, my Uncle Ron's favorite. Well,
2: he sings it at all the parties. George! Carolina Moon. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Before Dick James leaves us, uh, the two songs which would become or were already important to the Beatles Ain't She Sweet was in that catalog, <laughs> and Stardust was in that catalog. The yes. song The Ringo would cover a few months later. Sentimental journey,
3: yeah. I'm going to have to look back, because I, I didn't before the show, but is Stardust credited to Northern Songs on the album? Uh,
2: I don't know. I'd have to check. Okay. I mean, it, it may have still been credited to the original publisher, or you know, published through Northern Songs or something. I guess the other thing is, did it go with Northern Songs when Dick James sold Northern Songs, or did he just sell the book beatles piece of northern song
3: no i think you, you would sell the company whatever the assets were i'm going off on a tangent here just for a little bit but please i i, I
4: wonder I'm, i mean i'm going well ahead of the time ta- of the year where i'm going virtually a year later here but i wonder if some of the songs on uh ringo's album were from that deal other than stardust itself and i'm wondering if that was part of it
3: that he was promoting the northern songs—that would be interesting.
4: You know, a bit like the the deal with John later when he made the rock and roll album. Yeah. I'm wondering if they were saying, "Oh, use these songs," or this, this, and this song, and then that makes. But then again, that doesn't make any sense because they didn't have that much of a percentage anyway, did they? I don't
3: think they well, had anything at that point. I mean, you'd make some certainly, but if you had a catalog or a list of songs that were part of that, and you're going, "Oh, mom, like that one." Like, oh, that's cool. Let's do that. I mean, you know, it's possible. That sounds like homework.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's why we have Nick and we have our uh, friends, Dan Rifkin over at the, uh, they may be parted blog. <laughs> you know, they've been doing this for years and, and they've done a deeper dive than any of us will ever be able to do.
3: Wow. Can't wait for the 2050 wiki, you know?
2: <laughs> so, you know, Dick James m- moves on and George is clearly already uh, in a mood. <laughs> you know, From the minute he walks into the studio, he, he's not happy that day.
4: Right. Yeah, but George is going through a lot of things, isn't he, that are going on behind the scenes?
2: Yeah, you know, so we can now bring up the uh, personal issues that George was having that week.
3: I think that's very real. I mean, you can't divorce your private life from... What's going on? And so he had some important things going on in his personal life.
2: Let's just spill. Let's not be uh, (laughs) coy about it. Eric Clapton had a girlfriend. Eric Clapton fell in love with Patty while Patty was still George's wife. So as one would do, George invited Eric Clapton's girlfriend to come and live with them at Ken Faust. But
3: there is a timeline. I don't think that Eric and Patty were... A thing so to speak
2: oh no they weren't a thing but eric was clearly in love with her from pretty early on i think eric had already he he may not have told her yet but he was very clearly mooning over her
3: yeah but Um, but do you think george would be aware of that in order to exact some sort of revenge on eric
2: the way it's described in Life in 12 Bars, it was pretty unmissable from pretty much the beginning. He would come over not just to hang out with George, but to hang out with George as a stare at Patty.
4: There's a difference between the two of them there, where, oh dear me, we're going into <coughs> sordid details here, sort of, but Eric was almost gentlemanly in a way where, yep, he, he liked and loved, uh, or th- thought that he loved Patty, but George. He wasn't quite so gentlemanly when it came to Eric's uh, girlfriend.
2: Her her name was Charlotte Martin. She was a French model, and she and Eric had actually been dating for over two years, and there was talk of her marrying Clapton at the time. So, I mean, it wasn't just, I'm going to break up with you because I'm in love with my best friend's wife now.
3: Well, uh, and the fact that when there was a crisis in Eric and Charlotte's relationship, You know, you just don't decide, hey, I think I'll go live at George's, (laughs) you know. I mean, they clearly had a relationship that would allow that to happen. It's like, yeah, well, come stay with us.
2: Well, and as Olivia would tell us in Living in the Material World, George liked women and women like George. I
3: heard that.
2: (laughs) That was very honest of her to say that.
3: (laughs) Right. Putting it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> All she had to do was watch Hard Day's Night. Damn it.
2: So Patty was was not happy with this turn of events. I mean, particularly since uh, the most sorted of details is well, George was trying to have, uh, well, a threesome, a menage a trois with both of these ladies. Yes, and Patty was having none of that. To George's dismay. <laughs> yes. There, there was an episode of Two and a Half Men, The Charlie Sheen Show, which went a lot like this, by the way. <laughs> 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 okay <laughs> bringing up the classics there Ed.
3: Yeah, right inspired Ooh. by real events
2: so so patty laughed patty patty did the proverbial see ya i'm off to see my mom
3: i'm gone to liverpool <laughs> so she was gone for for that
2: for, for most of that whole that first that week.
3: initial week yeah and Into that second week. So during that time, apparently George was churning out songs. Charlotte may have been there, but he was writing a song every night, it seemed like.
2: Well, it was probably Charlotte that he was watching TV with most of those evenings. Say no more. Yes. Patty had basically said, you know, get rid of the girl and I'll come back. And that was what was running through George's head as he walked into Twickenham that morning.
3: Yeah, now we have to figure out. Was he like, hey, yay, Patty's back, or damn, I had to send the girl away?
2: That's enough to sort of spin anybody's head.
3: Yeah, I think things could easily set him off (laughs) because he's not in a good headspace at all.
2: I mean, that session in the morning wasn't a bad session after Dick James left.
4: Absolutely not. Very, very fruitful, and they got a fair bit of
3: uh, work done. Absolutely. Well, there there was one part, as you know, they, they went in to get back started working on that. And yeah. John said something I, I found really interesting, which was, uh, we've never learned so
5: many new numbers
0: at once, have we? Yeah, that's it. It will be better.
3: And I thought, you know, when you're kind of a, a rock band, you learn a song and put it in your set and, and the Beatles ended up with quite a few songs in their set, but he's really right. They had never sat down and, and tried to learn 11 songs in a sitting basically.
2: Well, not since 61 or 62.
3: He believes that that they've never done that. So that's another little added pressure to all this.
4: But a lot of the material that they're learning at this time is actually much more arranged and complex than the material that they were learning back in the early 60s.
3: Yeah, because for the most part they were doing copy tunes. Now they're trying to put arrangements to all these things. So they're going to write them, learn them, arrange them.
4: But there was more arrangement to these songs than there was even to the compositions that he wrote themselves back in 61 as well. They'd actually advanced in the way of arrangement and the sections and how they transition from one section to another. Those transitions had also got more complex. Very very much so. so. So trying to push these songs out is more difficult or would be more difficult than it would have been back then because the more complex to be able to try and force in such a short period of time this number of songs.
3: Right.
2: Out of that morning session, there are a couple of highlights for me. The the very fast get back where they're almost playing it being the who. (laughs) Right.
3: And, And George and Paul have an interesting back and forth because Paul has this view of what a certain chord sounds like and that it's just like all these other chords you know i think he mentions she's a woman and everything like that and george is like it's only a chord (laughs) it's a chord you can use basically it's not well it's that chord it's used in all sorts of songs as far as this chronology that was kind of the first back and forth between george and paul that might lead to some animosity later on that day yeah
0: yeah but it's all right i mean but we should we should uh, try and get away from Get yeah. get away from that. Uh, no, That's what just, it is, isn't Yeah, it? but I know. I mean, just get away from the way... Uh, you know, well, where did we get that chord? You know, there was a song we got that chord. There's, there's lots them, There's lots of... But there was it. one, you know, where we... There's tea and the Gs. But there's lots but it's passe, you know. It's like it's, it, was, it was a couple of years ago. No, it wasn't, that's just a chord. Like, I know, but you know, you know, know yeah, but chords, and like fashion and stuff. Fit things. But it's like Drainies. You yeah, know. but some Drainies... It's still Drainies, but they've... ...suit been... different occasions and opposite bags that's good enough for the rock and roll thing.
4: Yeah, I think George was using chord inversions that Paul didn't feel were right for those songs, yeah. which...
3: I think you're right, yeah.
4: So Paul would want one version of, say, an A chord, whereas George is playing an A chord at a different area, so the notes aren't quite sounding exactly how Paul wants them. But then we'll eventually get to the fact that there's a conversation that touches on this later on.
3: Yeah. There's something that comes up, and maybe one of you know. Paul later on mentions Diana chords. Did either of you know what that means?
4: No, I have no idea. So
3: I just assumed it was a finger shape, or perhaps the type of chord they played if they played the song Diana. But I don't know. Hmm. Speculation. Some more homework. Homework.
4: (laughs) You you might be right. There might be specific. So if you've got a sort of certain shape, uh, as as we all know, because we're all musicians and we play uh, guitars ourselves, so you can have a shape on a guitar where if you move it up the fretboard, it's a different chord but it's that same, it's the same, same shape. Same
3: finger shape. So right.
4: you might be right. The Diana might be a certain shape and they're talking about, oh, we'll play that chord, but at this
3: shape. Paul mentions in three, two, one that one of the advantages that the Beatles had was that they all learned guitar together and they knew the shapes that they played. They all knew how to play these chords and that was one of the communication things that they had. So either the shortcut would be like, play the Diana chords. And everybody would know what that meant.
2: And the other thing about that Get Back, they briefly bring up again the, the No Pakistanis and the uh, Puerto Ricans thing, and John says that he liked it. Yeah, It's like, I thought that it completely dropped. I mean, they weren't singing those lyrics anymore, but that's kind of interesting.
3: Yeah. It was still in flux, is what that was.
4: It's an interesting one, that, because I think they were right to drop it in a way, because what they were doing could so easily have been misconstrued if they had left it that way.
3: Yeah, and it was when it came out as a bootleg.
2: And it still is in a lot of ways. Like I say, Peter Jackson had to be very, very careful about how he presented it. Yeah,
3: all the explanations. (laughs) Don't take this one seriously.
2: (laughs) So, you know, they they finish up that morning session and really without warning, without anything, George just turns to John and says... uh,
0: We'll
5: leaving. Uh, leaving.
2: the band now Where? now get a <laughs> <place>. <laughs> the and get a few people. Right. I didn't see that coming out of the morning session.
3: No real warning. I don't know how the film is edited, but I think if there was some buildup to it, Jackson would have included it, and it was uh, just out of the blue, really. John's response, which is to ask when, is kind of odd. You would think he'd be like, "What? <laughs> Not well, I was expecting this. What are you leaving?"
2: There's that bit of conversation between George and Mal, and that's really kind of interesting. Unless you George to see I uh, But he shouldn't be bothered with that, you
5: know. That's why we've got so, Apple, I so that, you know we <laughs> attend to our yeah. We aim uh, to please. I, I Chris are you still turning? Hmm. He is.
3: Oh. stuff that goes on afterwards after george has left behaviors and comments you know it was like a big grenade just got dropped and everybody's kind of saying weird things <laughs> you know let's divide up his guitars or we'll get eric or you know any number of things
2: the rest of them then go off to lunch still and then they come back you know so pissed uh, huh? i don't know what i'm
0: coming back here for no <laughs> <laughs>
3: we're
5: just pretending nothing's happening yeah
4: Perhaps it's a case of, you know, sometimes when you're told things or you find out things and you take a while to respond because it's almost as though you can't actually take in the fact of it all and then eventually it sinks in after a while, which it actually did do with the other three. It sunk in and it was like, oh God, what do we do now? And you get the the next day or whatever, they sort of like realise that, look, we can't do this like this. We've We've got to finish early and we've got to go and sort this situation out eventually they realize that there's a problem there.
3: It's either going to be George or Yoko.
2: Well, but that hasn't been proven yet, although... Peter Jackson is also very diplomatic in how he cuts that. Well, we'll go get to there shortly. The the afternoon session, they're just sort of working off their anger and grief, it sounds like, to me. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. A punk version of I've Got a Feeling. They do a bit of Don't Let Me Down. And then there's that very much akin to Yoko Ono, Plastic Ono Band jam that they do, where Paul's just having fun with the feedback.
4: Yeah. It makes you wonder what Paul would have been like if he was bass player on Yoko Ono and the Plastic Ono Band album.
2: And Michael Lindsay Hogg clearly had fun focusing on George's empty cushion.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was trying to develop something. He's like, gosh, how am I going to trick George into going to Tunisia at this point? He's not even (laughs) in the band. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But their discussions kind of devolve into ridiculousness and john singing maxwell silver hammer it just kind of dissolves
2: and then michael lindsey hogg tells the story of orson welles walking off the set orson welles yeah he's my daddy (laughs) (laughs) did he actually believe that though oh he believed it okay he (laughs) believed it he believed it up until recently and i think he may still believe it even though it's probably untrue
3: did his mother think?
2: His mother told him? No, I, I don't think his mother actually believed it, but I think his mother told him that.
3: What a bitch.
2: <laughs> yes. I'm going to tell know,
3: you that that's your father, and that, that will stick the, with you yeah. your entire life.
2: I mean, maybe the point was, it's your father is not the hog. Sir Hog, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so, who's dad then? Uh, Orson Welles. Yeah, we were buddies. <laughs> and they, they may well have been lovers, but from most accounts, the timing just never worked out.
3: Except for then.
2: Timing in terms of Michael Lindsay Hogg's birth.
3: Ah. N- next
4: episode of Jerry Springer, they can do a parental <laughs> check on him.
2: <laughs> right. D-
4: DNA test I think I'm right.
2: Well, but they did DNA testing. Oh my god! It was inconclusive. (laughs)
3: It was inconclusive.
2: I can go into the test, and they could certainly do a much better test now, but they'd have to exhume the Wells body.
3: Oh my gosh!
2: (laughs) (laughs) The DNA test they did at the time was a hair test.
3: Oh my god! I can just imagine apple scruffs holding him down.
2: No, take the swab. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Peter Jackson skips ahead and closes part one with the isn't it a pity beautifully placed
4: tune
3: is that from the all things Was past sessions
1: I mean is that version I tried to not do too much movie maker enhancement but there was one thing I couldn't resist doing is at one point you'll see it in the film, at one point after George has left and they're getting a bit depressed about George leaving I couldn't help but there's a beautiful demo that George does on Day, the morning of day 17, is not filmed. You've got the 8-track of it. As, Isn't It a Pity? It's the day when George helps Ringo with Octopus Garden at the beginning of the day. Well, George came in there about an hour earlier and did a demo with Glenn. of Isn't It a Pity, just for himself. I don't think the camera crew probably have shown up for work yet. You know, it's certainly not filmed. Glenn records it on 8-track, and that's a beautiful... I mean, I actually kind of almost prefer it to the finished song. It's a beautiful, beautiful demo, and so I, I couldn't help myself, but when the Beatles, back on day... Seven, when George is left and they're getting, as I say, they're, they get deflated. I couldn't resist putting Isn't It a Pity over the top of that, which is a real movie maker trick. And I don't do that too often. I don't like doing that. A couple of people who've seen it said that it made them cry. So they should cry because George has quit the band. These guys are getting depressed. It's fine if somebody cries at that because it is a sad moment. So in a way, if, if Isn't It a Pity creates tears from people at that time, then the tears are actually ap- appropriate because... They're looking pretty sad, the Beatles, and, and the audience, quite frankly, should, should be sad as well. It's not, not a very happy time. So. But I did that. I mean, that's almost the only example of that I can think of, really, where I'm putting a soundtrack, soundtrack onto a documentary like that. But uh, most of the time, I avoided it.
3: You know, that, that's a beautiful rendition of it.
2: And it's not one that's on the box set.
3: I was just about to say that. This is so beautiful. Why would you leave this off?
2: Because we're giving it to Peter Jackson.
3: <laughs> this is like Machiavellian here.
2: So we find out what Peter Jackson doesn't tell us is that John Yoko went to have breakfast or lunch with George on the Saturday. Right. And by all accounts, that was reasonably friendly. Well,
3: I guess that would that indicate that the biggest disagreement is between George and Paul at that point.
2: The thing about the meeting and again, something that is... Pretty much glossed over, although we do get some comments from Paul about it, is that John simply wasn't talking all that much. John was talking to Yoko, and Yoko was expressing John's point of view in that meeting.
3: In the meeting
2: with the Beatles. On the Sunday yeah. meeting. So they all agreed they would meet on the Sunday right, to try and get George back into the band. And what's reported everywhere else is that John was not in a talkative mood so he would, you know, whisper things to Yoko and Yoko would express John's point of view.
3: Well, you know, if, if they'd had a meeting with George the day before, maybe John felt like he had kind of said what he needed to say. And
2: So that, that then ends part one of Get Back.
3: Well, yes, except for the rendition of the Castle of the King of the Birds, which is yeah. a full band version of it, which I had never heard.
4: It's very cool. It's not on the Let It Be box set
3: no because they're playing around we're not going to release this because it's going to be on the get back soundtrack it'll
4: be on the 100th anniversary edition (laughs)
3: It,
2: it may show up when we finally get the rupert soundtrack officially released the deluxe edition of the rupert soundtrack because that's where that song finally ended up oh
3: my gosh yeah
4: We'll probably get that at the same time as we get a soundtrack for Shanghai Surprise.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so we move on to part two. We move on to, to day eight, which was the Monday. So it's the day after the meeting. January 13th. Uh, January 13th. <laughs> and what Ringo says is... The meeting was fine. A lot of good things were then, you know.
3: They all sort of fell apart in the end. And I think the takeaway is that Yoko spoke for John for most of the meeting, and that while that was going on, George basically left. And so it didn't end well.
4: It's funny in a way that because it's one of those cases where allegedly, in this circumstance anyway, John's not communicating correctly irritates george because he'd do the same thing years later with the balloon incident
3: right that was a form of communication that he used
4: all of the beatles had got together this is years later they, for the official split and to sign the paperwork and john didn't turn up and all he did was send a balloon as his response officially and and george it irritated george for, for the for the rest of time really didn't it, I think.
2: right after the lost weekend they never really made up
5: because I have a feeling that half the
0: stuff Yoko said yesterday isn't. I mean, she was talking for John. And I don't think he really. Believed any of that, you know? No, it's, it's just John didn't talk. You see, Yoko talked for John. Did George stay in the middle of all of that? Actually, George went. So well, I'll see you. See, but their point is that they, they're trying to like be as near together as they can. They want to stay together, those two. So it's all right, let the young lovers stay together. But it's not that bad, you know. We got a lot out of Beatles. So that it, I think John's saying no,
2: obviously it came to a
0: push between Yoko and the Beatles. It's Yoko,
2: yeah. That whole conversation that morning uh, is as honest as they can be on camera, although they'll, they'll be more honest in a minute here. Looks well, oh, yes. like they could
3: uh, just ask Michael Lindsay Hogg to leave. <laughs> just. Just step away for a bit and, you know, I, I, I thought one indication of how disconnected he is, is when uh, flowers come in for George and uh, Ringo takes him and he looks at the card and it's from the Hare Krishnas, you know.
2: Hare who? Exactly.
3: <laughs> it's like, have you not been around? What, you know.
4: <sighs> Did you not see those two little old men in the corner? <laughs> What a little <laughs> old man. Yeah. <laughs> very clean.
3: <laughs> yeah. So I just think, gosh, this guy.
2: But Paul is very much sort of lost in this conversation. Absolutely.
4: And and he's very telling when he says that he can't do this on camera.
3: Yeah.
2: And the other thing we haven't mentioned is that John hasn't come in yet and no one can really reach him. Right. And then number two. So they do finally reach him, and John says, "Okay, I'll be coming. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, Paul talks about a conversation he had with Neil about an idea of what the show could be about, you know.
0: I was talking to Neil last night about an idea I thought of for a a TV show. Mm. We should get, like, uh, say, the editor of the Daily Mirror, Mm. a real hard news nut, rehearsing a team of really hard, incredible newsmen. Mm. So that on the night of the show, in between all our songs is news, but the fastest and the hottest from every corner of the earth. And we just heard that in an earthquake film, and it's, going, <clears throat> it it's yes. like a red hot news program. Mm. And, um, and at the end, the final bulletin is that the Beatles have broken up.
3: And that's when Ringo just kind of looks with some horror in a way, and the tears start flowing. They're not flowing, yep. they're not flowing, but yep. they're from Liverpool. They're not going to flow like that. Um,
4: you, you can see it in both of the eyes. Yes. I mean, that, that bit there is incredibly poignant. And you, you can see in that, in, in Paul uh, mostly, you can see so much almost fear in his eyes when he's doing it. And he's, he's scared and he, you know, it's like he knows what's to come in a sense eventually. I mean, many months down the line, but you can see that fear in his eyes. And in, in Ringo, you can see him almost tearing up. It's yeah, it's an incredibly poignant moment
2: well and then he, when he starts singing that build me up buttercup it's not a happy version of the tune he's uh, clearly hiding his emotions behind this pop ditty.
4: yes right yeah it's like he's trying to make himself feel better and make himself livelier for the cameras
3: <laughs> but you know as he kind of looks at ringo his gaze darts back and forth almost like trying to control the tears and that's what he says and then there were two.
2: So then John comes in uh, and we move on to the launch tape, which you know we've talked about several times already. Yeah,
3: uh, let's talk about that again. Uh, let's talk about uh, the ethical part behind that. That you put a microphone to tape a private conversation. And of course it wasn't used in the Let It Be film.
2: But Michael Lindsey had bugged the telephones. <laughs> okay, so you he's know. an ass. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but someone clearly tipped off the Beatles because none of them ever used the bugged phones.
3: You know, the people working there were working for the Beatles. And so they should have been notified. But that, that was just, you know, when I first came across that conversation, I was gobsmacked. You know, it was just like, wow. He bugged the table next to them in order to get this conversation. Did he not use it and let it be because it was just not a good recording? He couldn't use it because
4: the, the actual sound of it back then was was terrible. And all you could hear was the, uh, the silverware <laughs> oh, silverware, and everything being cleared away by the canteen staff. So you weren't able to, to actually hear anything at all. I mean, we'll just touch on the fact that the technology that they created or the, the software that they created to do this, it's incredible the way that they've peeled back the layers and all you've got are the voices and very little of the actual silverware and everything else in the background
3: so is Peter Jackson's technology gonna to go to the CIA or did he get it from the CIA
2: he's told this story the police had actually come to him with technology they developed for like bugging drug deals through a window and such and then it wasn't really applicable They could get what they were saying, but the voices were all mechanical.
3: Uh, Then we have to get to not only could he not use it because it wasn't all that good, but could he have used it in 1970? You know, oh, I've got this audio part where I bugged your private conversation. It'll be great for the movie. (laughs) I'm not sure that they had it back then in 1970.
2: Well, they had the tape. Well, yes, they had the tape, but the technology... No, they didn't have the technology for sure.
3: Definitely not. I just think that you know, again, the uh, ethics of doing what he did could he have really brought that up to the Beatles?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely would have been questionable, uh, and then it would depend upon what and how the contracts were written. Yeah, the contracts that Beatles signed to do this film, or were there any? I mean, you know, there may not have been.
3: Yeah. Okay, so we've covered the hidden mic. Now let's talk about what was said. <laughs> that yeah. is one of the most important scenes in the movie in a way because it kind of puts it all out there as to what you know a main issue of contention was within the band and
2: both john and paul are being remarkably honest which, as you would expect i mean they thought they were just being talking to themselves
3: well i would agree with half that john was being honest paul basically said yeah yeah right i do that you know, I mean uh, so if if that's Paul's honesty, yes. But he was mainly listening to what John was saying, talking about how they treated George.
2: And the wound, and we didn't give him any bandages. Yeah. Well,
3: he says, you know, you're afraid that how he's gonna play won't be like how you want him to play. And yeah. that's the issue. It's like you're not letting him be George Harrison and what he contributes. Now, I realize that's an evolutionary thing that at times in the past he was told what to play George Martin on the lead of Michelle play this melody line and that's what George played so it could be well that's what's done in the past but George has had enough of it you know he wants to play like he plays
2: but Paul does touch on the issue of leadership which granted does come out in other places in this film but he's really open about how he doesn't want to do that that
3: yeah but yeah but at the same time john is like saying i don't tell you what to play and i've allowed you to take it places where i didn't want and paul says you
0: have always been box oh, i've been <laughs> so second ago but no, not only you like, well really I mean it is going to be much better oh, if we can actually just think and just say look I'm, I don't have I don't have a it. exactly like that and he'll say like, I'm not you and yeah. I am not do it
5: exactly like you're doing but this is what you've been doing and what everybody's been doing I'm not only feeling guilty about the way we all feel guilty about our, our relationship is because we could do more
3: I wrote something else down that I th- caught my my ear which was a uh, There once was a period where uh, none of us could actually say anything about your arrangements because you would just reject it all. And I thought that was kind of important, too.
2: That tells you how things would change. And again, like I mentioned in the previous episode, that also very much points to where Paul would be in wings.
3: Yeah. But, you know, hearing that, I thought, well, I wonder what songs he's talking about. What arrangements... When did it go in a direction that John didn't necessarily want it to go? And in the interviews, he's actually named two songs that he felt like were more experimental, let's say, than he intended. And that was Strawberry Fields and Across the Universe. And so... But did Paul have anything to do with the arrangement of Across the Universe? Well, did he suggest Lizzie Bravo? And I mean, did he say, let's get some
2: girls... I don't know. But John was also just never happy with either of those arrangements, period. Like he said to George Martin, and upsetting him very much in the 70s, you know, I'd redo every one of them, even Strawberry Fields, especially Strawberry Fields.
3: You know, when you listen to how the song evolved, you could easily see that Strawberry Fields could have been more like Norwegian Wood in the arrangement you know it started off as an acoustic soft melody kind of thing
4: john said you know oh, i like this but i also like this right so the experimentalism starts there because they had to suddenly slam two different takes together so in a sense john actually created that problem for himself that he, you know i don't like the experimentalism of that
3: when you come in and say i want to smell the sawdust on the floor what does that mean so somebody has to create that and Maybe he didn't like the end result.
2: And then across the universe was, to a great extent, all in John's head. He could never get out what was in his head. And he always expressed regret right through to the Playboy interview. The way he would turn it around is say, oh, well, I always tried to experiment on my songs, and my songs were this basis for them to try the weird stuff. And that's not what I had in mind. But you didn't tell them what you had in mind, John. Yeah.
3: You can see the reasonings for it, but what's going on in his head, he feels like Paul, at times, has taken my songs in directions I didn't want to go. So I disagree with some of that. Not disagree, but I can see where his own character would lead to that, and he apparently had a grudge.
2: They do seem to work some things out in that lunchroom conversation. They come out of it saying that, okay... we're in a common place, let's go and talk to George again.
3: Right. Well, George has gone to Liverpool.
2: And Ringo asked Mal for some pep pills. (laughs) Yes.
4: (laughs) I was watching that with Louise, and Louise said, do they mean what I think they mean by pep pills? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) Well, yes, you do.
2: Was Mal still carrying Prelies around?
4: (laughs) There's an interesting one there, you know, that George has gone to Liverpool. And I've wondered this, so... How long was Georgia's mother poorly for?
3: Yeah, you know, I don't know where that started. To tell you the truth, uh,
2: the summer is when we really know the diagnosis came. So it was a, a few months short of that. But I've also read in several places that she started having some memory loss and you know some outward signs of this oncoming dementia.
3: Right, and it could be that. Or it could be, I've just quit the Beatles, I'm having problems with my marriage, I'm going to talk to my parents.
2: Although I don't think he'd tell them about Charlotte.
3: Well, probably not, and that may not be why he went, but, you know, that's a pretty major thing in his life.
4: Yeah, It, it could be a build-up of things, because, you know, George is having these problems with his relationship with Patty, uh, and then... He's possibly worried about his mother because she's it, starting to show the dementia signs. Right. So that's a worry on his mind as well. And then, you know, he's put with all these years of basically being, I think I've said before, the third wheel where, you know, he's an incredibly gifted musician, but he's constantly being told to oh, play this, play that. And he's basically being stifled creatively John said we've basically not helped him at all. He's just there on his own. And I think George Martin says it as well at one point that you two are a team, whereas he's just him on his own. None of us have really tried to help him or steer him or or do anything. He's just been there. And so all these things on together have just built up and up and up. And because John is being his usual non-communicative self as well, that's adding irritation to George as well because jo- John doesn't want to talk and all Paul's doing is being, um, as, as they've, they meant, they say later on, on uh, in, re- in recordings for uh, Imagine when George is on there and John says, oh, Beetle Ed and they keep calling Paul Beetle Ed. So Paul is being Beetle Ed at this time and that's irritating George as well.
3: Right.
2: So once they discover that they can't go and talk to George, they go and they work some more on Get Back, and they move along nicely with the lyrics. Yes, they do. Although they're determined to find some last names for Jojo and Sweet Loretta. It's a good
3: illustration of how you use the sounds of consonants and syllables as impetus for the music. Later on, John talks about Dig a Pony. It's like, it's got to be D's and G's. And so they were looking for that syllable clearly marsh being you know one syllable word didn't work as well as a two-syllable word and then he searches for that
4: yeah i've mentioned to people who've spoken about the film and i've said that and i know a lot of other people have touched on this i think one of the big things about this with that song and then dig a pony and other songs as well that they're working on It's an incredible film for songwriters because it shows you how a song develops. Like I said, I was watching it with my other half Louise and she was saying, oh, they're doing Get Back Again. And I said, yeah, I said, because they're honing the song. Yeah. So as they're going through it each time, there's something being done to it each time that's eventually shaping it into the song that we will know that is a classic song. And the same goes for these others. So... As much as the film can be seen by some people as being a bit long, in a sense it needs to be because it's showing you that creative process.
3: Yeah, you could show this on Masterclass, you know. Even now, yeah. This is how you do it. The fact that John constantly toys with whatever he's going to sing for Dig a Pony, Wind Glove and Skylight, Conolari, and just searching for that thing that works. its a great evolution.
2: So the big thing we get out here is we finally get Tucson, Arizona into the song. (laughs) Joe, Joe left his home in Tucson, Arizona. Joe
0: left his home in Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, yeah. Tucson.
2: It's where they make high chaparral.
4: Yes, I like that fact. <laughs> right, Paul, Paul with his uh, with his pop culture references.
2: <laughs> Although you would think Linda would actually chime in there somewhere. I'm
3: from Arizona.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Peter Jackson is like, you know, I was cheering for them to get to the right words until until they put Jackson at the end, and then it's like, oh, why are you changing it, you idiots?
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Linda may have been cowed at that point, though, because earlier she had said something and Paul said, be quiet, Yoko. He <laughs> says, so, oh, sorry.
2: <laughs> yes. So they, they end the day pushing it back a week. So I think at some yeah. point we should talk conceptually about the show.
0: Okay, so we have to be flexible, but we're going to have to be very flexible now, which mm-hmm. is like the 18th today has changed to the 19th because we lost a day today. Tomorrow it will change to the 20th. The day after it will change to the 21st. Why do put it back uh, George week. Comes, Well, exactly. If George comes back yeah. Put it back a full week, yeah.
1: Put it back a full week, but book it for a full week yes. minute, and then cancel it next week. Yes. Not to say changeable. Yeah, that no, I don't
5: uh-huh. know. My favorite guitar here is a sign. Did something, well, you'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. I'm
0: leaving my age. Or you'll old old for it. <laughs> look, look, what greater <laughs> faith could man have than to leave his list? is in black. It's I needed tripper. I mean, that's how flexible we can get. I feel fine yesterday. I want to be nowhere man, paperback long tall. What's
2: it from?
3: That's from the old shows.
2: So we move on to day nine, the Tuesday, the 14th. Yes. We're still in Twickenham.
3: And Paul plays the piano for basically the crew. And Ooh. I think it's a different kind of moment because he's playing the piano. and He just goes through all sorts of stuff at that point.
4: Martha, my dear. I love that version of Martha, my dear. I think that's lovely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And then there was one. Hey,
5: bye, Camille. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Rich.
3: How are you this morning?
2: Hey. Woman, the Peter and Gordon song. Right. And just a tiny little bit of uh, Backseat of My Car.
3: Not just a tiny little bit. He said he wrote that this morning.
0: <laughs> Do you like songs at the piano or on the guitar? Whatever I'm around, you know. Do you just sort of come in your head kind of thing? Yeah, sure. Oh. Yeah. In fact, I had one this morning so
3: we can
4: actually know what day he
3: wrote that song uh, you know he has the first verse and kind of emphasizes the word car sitting in the backseat of my car. He's,
0: he's
4: already worked out that he's going to emphasize that word yeah Exactly. He's already got the arrangement for that song, which won't come to fruition on an album for another two years or more. He's already got the arrangement in his head for that song.
3: Yeah. I kept thinking George has been just churning stuff out every night, but then clearly McCartney was at that point as well, because there's a bunch of new songs that show up.
2: Just incredible creativity. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I find myself watching this
4: documentary And I kept thinking of the album that could have been. (laughs) Right. With George and Paul's songs. Yeah. They had actually worked up a decent version of All Things Must Pass earlier on. I mean, we're going far back here, but, you know, there are some really good versions of what would eventually be on future albums by George as well.
3: Yeah. All Things Must Pass stayed on the list until the last moment.
4: It was on George Martin's list for the potential for the album, wasn't it? That's for sure.
2: The day before the rooftop. So while this is going on, John and Yoko are off in the other room doing what we now know as the uh, Two Junkies interview. (laughs) Right. Where John is pretty clearly spaced out. uh, And then he gets up and gets sick in the middle of the interview.
3: Yeah.
4: Because he even mentions in the documentary that he was uh, stoned.
3: I did want to bring up that little blast of songs that Paul did.
0: And like a lot of old tunes had just set chord patterns. Because that's the great thing, once you, start, once you start trying to find out chord patterns, you really sus what people are doing, you know, what musicians are doing. And they really, it's, you know, it's like... Like old tunes, you know, they have just a certain way of going. Mm-hmm. And they hardly ever vary from it. What, that, I don't really know it. You know, my dad same. knows that better.
3: There's a song credited to Leonard McCartney, The Song of Love. And it's like a real old school Hollywood Tin Pan Alley kind of thing. It just kind of rolls off.
2: It's just
0: for you And I sing a song for you <laughs> nice thank you michael Lindsay hogg
3: so then that's when the scene comes of everybody kind of sitting around and what did paul say yeah
0: oh,
2: this is we just sit here and allow ourselves to be embarrassed <laughs> the set show up for magic christian and peter sellers drops by welcome to panorama oh,
0: that's a- oh, it's lovely, sweet.
2: We've been lucky enough this
5: evening to secure the uh, talents of Mr. Peter Sellers here, who's going to give us number three. Yes. Number three, folks, number three, number three. How about that, folks? That was number three from Peter Sellers. Now on to the next round. Three. Oh. <laughs> if we ask him really nicely, he'll probably do number five. Yes,
2: I might. <laughs> oh. Again, here's a case where Peter Jackson has opted towards being diplomatic. Anyone who's heard that full tape, there's a whole boatload of John Paul and Peter Sellers talking about uh, the grass which came from India. Right. Remember when I gave you that grass in Piccadilly? <laughs> How you doing?
5: Man, really stung me out of my mind. It's really, I was just... Acapulco gold, wasn't it? Exactly. I
3: was really fantastic. I've always felt that Sellers just sounds completely uncomfortable, and he doesn't really get what's going on and in a way john is asking of him to do what he hates which is perform you know do it number three (laughs) do it number five you know and so i don't think peter sellers was having a good time and even when he leaves ringo kind of does that holding on to his hand and his arm until the last moment like no really we're cool
2: <laughs> although john shouting out just don't leave the needles lying around
5: you We've got a bad reputation now with john getting busted like.
3: then he discusses about being stoned the night before and abusing his body and getting high and
5: see, so missed me this morning i did it for cbs just left off in the middle of the interview i i'm just recovering from it From the night. No reason at all, except I'm mistreating my body. Yes, I just uh, was up late, you know. I was sort of stoned and high and watching films, and I wouldn't have made it anyway.
3: Paul very pointedly says,
0: "Is there any need to do this in public, Mr. Lemon? At the moment, you're a guest for lunch."
4: (laughs) Some very difficult humour from John during this day.
3: Right, you know who it reminds me of? Robin Williams. This is where my mind is going, and you're just kind of holding on. You can see how he gets there, but there's a bunch of non-sequiturs. And...
2: Well, but can you see how it leads to him talking about Boy Scouts masturbating, Which is very funny. It is
3: hilarious. <laughs> but that was one of the parts I really loved, is that Paul is sitting there talking about...
0: See, what you need is a serious program of work.
3: Paul has his arms crossed and clearly is like, ah. huh Sir Joseph,
5: it's about this deal with FBI. I need another million on the written acclamation of Dick James. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. They died that we might wank. I'm talking about the boy scouts who aren't allowed to masturbate. Oh.
3: And John keeps going. You don't actually go blind. You just get very nearsighted. And Paul just explodes in laughter. And that was kind of John's personality. He could get you to laugh, which made it hard to be angry with him, even though Paul clearly was.
4: I think there was a tension there, and perhaps John was using that to try and break the tension. So he was thinking, Mm -hmm. I'll get Paul to laugh, and that will sort the situation out a bit because he probably having trouble with how tense the situation was and the difficulty of them talking
3: yeah there's one other quote I that I loved which was see what you
0: need is a serious programme of work not an aimless rambling amongst the canyons of your mind an aim in my trip
5: upon that golden ship of shores we all together boy you know and it's a
0: <laughs> to wander aimlessly is very unswinging
5: on the hip. And when I touch you, I feel happy inside. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> you know, and then George Barton shows up and says, do you think Ringo could put on a long drum break? Yes,
2: I know. Another one of those Spinal Tap moments. Yeah,
3: right. And I think there are a couple more songs that they attempt.
2: Madman and Mean Mr. Yeah. Mustard and, you know. Although they're not really running through them, they're kind of running through them.
3: Yeah. And Mean Mr. Mustard, him placing it there, is that because they actually played it at that time? He does say, I've got a new song, or, you know, half of a song. And he, they do Madman.
2: Peter Jackson keeps things within the day, but he does move things right. around slightly chronologically, as opposed to the Nagras. Is Madman about Paul? <laughs> I don't think so you know, I think it's just kind of a Something which came off Of Mean Mr. Mustard Is the way I'd always seen it Well you
3: know it. He talks about a guy Who lives on a farm And kind of wants to get away And
2: uh, Well there you go uh,
3: they, they do it again Later on at Apple And the, the lyrics are more complete And it made me think Kind of aimed at Paul
4: Could be we, We've all done it As songwriters before Haven't we We're, We've written a certain song And then we've gone off On a tangent On a song that's similar Yeah
2: So kind of the day ends with them saying, well, you know, we don't want to film anymore. Why don't we just go back to EMI and finish this up as an album?
4: Is it at this point where they decide we we should just stop now and
3: try and sort all these problems out? Right. (laughs) I thought it was also Tilly that they say, "Okay, let's stop the cameras. And they do. But the tape keeps rolling. Should
0: we knock off early today or not? Probably, yeah.
4: Should we knock
2: on early tomorrow? Yes, I'll do that. So they cancel rehearsal for the next day. They do plan to go and talk to George. They talk to George and, well, everything is at least somewhat settled. Yeah,
3: but, you know, there was a problem with Yoko and Linda being at the first meeting. Historically, supposedly, Yoko was the bad seed, so to speak. And several people talk about, we just need the four of us to get together and hash things out. And I've never heard whether Yoko and Linda attended the second meeting.
2: And they don't tell us. Right. So, what was going on behind all of this? Glenn Johns had finally gotten George's A Track up and running and they gotten a board in place, but they never got to use it in Twickenham.
3: Paul puts it to excellent use. (laughs) He comes in with a song to demo, and it's Oh Darling
2: day 10 while we see mal and kevin packing up the drums packing up everything to move off elsewhere paul comes in oh well we've got this thing set up so let's do something with it and and he does oh darling
3: yeah and yep just like that <laughs> and he has the the essence of the song right there the slap back echo and it's a pretty form song I'm, I'm really surprised it didn't make it into uh, apple to be one of the live things because it would have been great
2: well i guess it would have had to have been organ if they did it all live on the roof
3: yeah i'm not sure that i'm not sure if the roof would have taken a piano right there was a weight consideration and a, and just getting a piano on the roof an
4: upright piano maybe
3: but a big grand piano absolutely
4: not
2: they didn't have the magic piano back then; it didn't exist yet.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: And so while that's going on, Glenn and George go down to the Apple Studios. <laughs> I guess I guess they've decided that okay, we're not going to go to EMI, but we will go to our own studio in the basement. Magic Alex has been working on this. I'm sure it's ready. You know, it's, a, it's a couple of weeks early, but we can use it.
3: I wonder if they warned him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, send Alex an email. We're coming down to see the studio.
2: And the studio itself looks very pretty. Nice green carpet. There's a nice wall. There's no patch base, so the cords can't run through, but there's separation, and, or as much separation as you, as you can get in a space of that size. Yep, yeah, but it needs central heating, apparently.
3: <laughs> and you don't really get a great look at the control room. What I heard was that the desk looked like something out of a old world war ii bomber
2: there was an oscilloscope in the middle of it apparently okay peter jackson kind of demonstrates that and and we get a little bit of the recording that they did that day not good
3: yeah i think jackson says you know there was hiss and i'm thinking that's what it is it is It doesn't have a little, it is.
2: And if you read in recording sessions, Lewison tells us that that board ended up being sold off as scrap metal for about five pounds. I
4: wonder if Neil Young was inspired by that hiss for that album that he ended up doing
3: to finish his contract that time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's sad because if they just would have held on with that recording desk until eBay showed up, you could have sold it for thousands of pounds. Half a million
2: dollars, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So Glenn Johns calls up George Martin and says, look, we need equipment in here. Yeah. They then back out of the studio, give them a couple of days so they can install everything necessary.
3: Yeah. I'm going to mention one of the things that I, I am perplexed about, and that is through this whole thing, George Martin is very definitely involved in all of this. I mean, he's there virtually every session and he has suggestions and works with Glenn John in the control room. And why doesn't his name show up on "Let It Be" at all? Well, Glenn Jones doesn't, does it? I think it ventures Glenn uh, as the recording engineer.
2: They, yeah, they give him some credit.
3: Yeah, A- and why he got completely dropped—that's kind of hurtful because he was there.
4: But once they hit uh, Savile Row, George Martin is constantly bringing up ideas and. It's a great team, actually. Him and Glenn Johns together are, are putting ideas forward that, you know, it, it gets the project moving a lot
3: quicker. Yeah. You know, they get together and work alone that first day at Apple Studios. It apparently went really well. No cameras, but they kind of worked out a bunch of stuff. And so the second day when Martin comes in.
5: We should get really underway today, huh? We really got on the way yesterday. It was a good day yesterday. You know
3: yeah, oh, from your point of view. I'm God. talking about from my point of view. Oh, yeah, you should get on the way. How late do a class now? Oh, 20 past seven. <laughs> so keep an eye on this th- through the whole uh, process because he's there a lot more than I ever thought. <laughs> and I've been reading Beatle books for ages.
2: Well, I mean, you know, there are multiple films within this film. You can follow whoever you want to follow, pretty much. You can follow George Martin. You can follow Glenn Johns. You can follow Michael Lindsay Hall. Oh, gosh,
3: you could follow Kevin Harrington. (laughs) <laughs> wow
4: there's an idea for peter jackson for a bonus feature Just choose your own like we used to with books you know when you used to be able to go from one page to another <laughs> that's great you could do the mal story
2: so George's eight track does find its way into apple they do manage to lash together two four tracks they'd actually had a different eight track board over at twicken and why that didn't make its way into the apple studios is kind of beyond me
3: yeah some sort of logistics or agreements or
2: space even i mean you know they were in pretty cramped quarters there
4: yeah or maybe emi could only let them have it for so long and then they'd rented it out to somebody else perhaps right
2: that's a possibility as well so we hit the 20th Day 11, which is the day we were just speaking of, the the day where cameras were not allowed into the studio.
3: Yeah, which is uh, interesting to me because, you know, they had all these days that were not quite so successful at Twickenham. and, And they come to Apple and they're by themselves and there's not cameras and crew walking around. And they all say it was a great day. So they needed that privacy. Well, to a degree, is,
4: Isn't this the first day that all four of them are back together again since George saying that he was leaving the band? The first musical
3: day, yeah.
2: They'd certainly met up at the meeting, and they may have met up at Twickenham that day. I mean, you know, Paul was there and, and George came into Twickenham before they then drove out to Apple. I don't know where the other two were that day.
4: No, but I'm, I'm just thinking that that first day that they were back without the film cameras there, they were going through the songs, but they're also probably... Carrying on the discussions between each other, trying to iron out their own problems as well.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. And Peter Jackson also makes use of the day and the time we get to see some Apple scruffs. We do. <laughs> and that's really nice from a historical perspective. Yeah.
4: I, I wonder if they can actually take any footage that we haven't seen already and do an Apple scruffs version.
3: <laughs> well, earlier when you said do it, a, a- film on Mal, I'm thinking there is going to come out with the books in 2023. There'll be a Mal movie.
2: Well, there may well be a Mal biopic, but, you know, thankfully the Mal books are being done by an actual friend of ours. Someone we might be able to get on the show, Ken Womack.
4: Yes, a great writer. Great friend of all of us.
2: That ends the George saga. We'll move on next week into the Billy Preston era.
3: And that'll be a joy. It will. Spoiler. <laughs>
2: <Yep>. <laughs> so you, you got your closing remarks here,
4: Martin? I'm much slower than everybody else going through this, but it's, it's a fascinating documentary and I'm looking forward to the release of the 18 hour version on Blu-ray.
3: <laughs> not going to be enough.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's never enough.
2: We'll finally get to hear them talking about Josh Agabor.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Give us the full Peter Sellers.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Next week, a special week. The former co-host of this show is joining us along with another special guest as we move on to Billy Preston. So Lonnie Pena, uh, myself, and John Stone next week.
3: All right. Looking forward to that.
2: All right. Thanks, everybody. Take Talk care. Bye-bye. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
0: What do you think of John Lennon and the, the relationship with Yoko Ono? I
5: don't know, it's OK. It's it's choice, isn't it?
0: I mean, it doesn't worry you at all. all? It's
5: got nothing to do with anybody else, really, is
0: so. Not really. No, that's a good, good answer. And you've obviously read in the papers about the possible split of the people. So, yeah. I mean, how does that sort of affect you? Well, I don't want them to break up, but... You know, I don't sort of come for all of them. It's just all I come for, so it doesn't really matter. As long as I can see him, it's all right. What would you like to see the Beatles do now? Oh, a show, (laughs) yeah, a live show, (laughs) any
5: show, yeah. It was lovely walking in here yesterday. Yeah, it really was. In retrospect, I'm glad we got out. Uh, something queer about Twitter, I don't know what it was. Too big. Too big for what we were doing, you know. I and mean, this is nice.
1: Mm. <laughs> I'm on a special diet from today.
0: What do you want? No food. Oh, boy. <laughs> Why? Does it feel a little heavy? When you get out the bath, you sort of I mean, you're not admiring yourself in the mirror. Yeah. I tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they've got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel
5: for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.